From the McCourtney Institute for Democracy and the studios of WPSU on the campus of Penn State University, I'm Michael Berkman. And I'm Chris Beam. I'm Jenna Spinelli. And guys, we are recording the season two finale of Democracy Works today. Wow, we made, we made it, it to the end of another season. So today we're A going... little worse for wear. <laughs> A lot of rubber off the road, but anyway. Let's we're here. <laughs> we're here. It's the best of times was the worst of times, and we're going to talk about it all today. Uh, this episode, uh, we are recording it, we should say, on Monday, December 3rd, and I mention that because we are taking a look back at some of the, the biggest stories in the world of democracy that have happened so far this year. This and what, episode and what could out. happen in December that we're right, going to catch? Right. Yeah, maybe we'll talk about some of that. <laughs> we'll look ahead to 2019, and this episode uh, will be coming out right before the holidays. So we'll end the year, kind of take a look back, look ahead, and uh, see where we go from there. So we're going to start off um, with with a, a topic that I think really kind of came to the forefront this year, and that's gerrymandering or, or redistricting, however you want to kind of think of it. Um, we saw action in, in a lot of places on this, this topic. Um, here in Pennsylvania, we got a new electoral map at the beginning of the year. We're ending the year here in the Commonwealth with the formation of an in, in independent redistricting commission. We've also saw a Supreme Court decision this year. Or, or um, the absence of one. Really. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I guess we could talk about that. So North Carolina, Wisconsin, Maryland, all types of um, cases surrounding gerrymandering. So um, what where do you guys think things stand now here at, at the end of the year versus where they started um, in terms of efforts to have more democratically drawn maps? What struck me about the redistricting this year is that it seemed like people were really waking up to the reality of it. And I'm not exactly sure why that is. I, I, I suspect it has to do with the fact that in 2010 or after the 2010 elections, uh, Republicans were really good <laughs> at drawing district lines to uh, to benefit themselves, building on advantages I think that they already have and how people sort of live within states. So that in several states we saw over multiple elections where Democrats might have done fairly well but weren't winning seats. And this, I don't know, it seemed to really drive home public awareness of the issue, uh, along with these court cases. Yeah. I mean, I think for us, it is relevant because um, there's something fundamentally anti-democratic about uh, drawing districts such that they um, take away the power of the electorate and such that they preserve the standing or the um, the offices of office holders. And um, in, in there was an article just recently in the Post that said that, you know, um, in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania and New North Carolina this year, um, Democrats received more than 50 percent of the votes and yet um, something closer to a third of the seats. And, you know, I mean, yeah, there are structural advantages for the Republicans just because uh, Democrats tend to cluster in cities and urban areas. But nevertheless, I mean, there's something, you know, um, unfair about that and unrepresentative about well, that. Well, one thing that struck me about it, too, and this is really after the uh, what happened in, during the Georgia gubernatorial election is I, I think maybe there was a, a fuller recognition of the fact that, I mean, you're saying that it's unfair, but but actually it's built into the American political system that that elections are controlled by partisan bodies. Mm -hmm. You know, the, we, 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 it's set up so that states control elections and they put the they put elections largely in the hands of elected officials, well, elected secretaries of state, elected governors. And so you're going to get rules and you're going to get redistricting. You're going to get regulations, all of which are 
kind of benefit one party over the other. I mean, to me, it really speaks to the fact that the that uh, we 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 would be. We would be wise to move in a direction that they have in some other states where elections are increasingly taken out of the hands of elected officials and put in the hands of nonpartisan professionals. There's nothing in the Constitution about how uh, redistricting should go on, just that it has to happen. And, uh, and I well, think, but states are given power over Right, elections. exactly. And, and the states have made decisions, um, again, in a, in a far more uh, partisan climate than anything the founders could have uh, foreseen uh, to, uh, you know, um, make these decisions in ways that preserve their own power. It shouldn't be lost on anyone that H.R. 1 in the uh, in the next chamber, in the next uh, mm-hmm. session of Congress, or the first bill introduced by the Democrats is going to have to do with voting rights and voter protection and same-day voter registration. The details of it are not worked out yet. But but it is the case that, that now just voting it's taken on a real, a real polarized partisan dimension. You know, I, I, I have, um, you know, long argued that it just so happens that right now the the partisan climate is such that it it advantages Republicans to be against uh, expansion of the voter, uh, the voting rolls, and expansion of uh, ease with which people vote, and. Um, if the situation were reversed, you'd have Democrats being anti-democratic. There's nothing about partisanship. However, granted, I do think that what you're seeing um, in, after the election of 2018 in uh, Wisconsin and uh, uh, Pennsylvania and, and North Carolina, where you have this, um, oh, and Michigan too, uh, where the the advent of a new governor into the state has this is not Pennsylvania it's Wisconsin North Carolina Michigan has led to this kind of um, lame duck session where they're literally trying to take away power from uh, the incoming Democratic governor and that you know this does strike me in terms that we've talked about on the show from uh, how democracies die and the sense of forbearance that um, uh, um, politicians in a democracy are, should um, adhere to. This is this is a rankly undemocratic thing that's going on here. And I think it needs to be called out for that. So given all of that, do you guys think we're going to, to move the needle at all between now and the, the next census in, in 2021? Or, you know, where do you think things will end up? Well, there have been some important developments. I mean, the, the case in Pennsylvania is uh, quite significant, but it applies only to Pennsylvania. That doesn't mean we can't see it in, in other states. Uh, we've also seen some states pass through uh, referendums. Uh, just this year. Just this mm-hmm. year. Uh, Michigan. Yes. Motions to open up voting, to move to a... Uh, a nonpartisan means of redistricting uh, uh, the uh, uh, along some similar lines, you know, the vote in Florida, which won by a you know significant bipartisan margin, the uh, to expand the voting rights to felons, suggests that there, you know, maybe is some energy out there on some of these on some of these uh, voting issues. So moving from uh, redistricting on to the the midterms themselves, you know, no matter what what the districts looked like, we did see turnout in a lot of places that rivaled presidential years. So that certainly says something uh, about democracy, right? We we saw also a lot of 
uh, increased um, voter registration. Um, we, we mentioned here on, on the, the campus of Penn State, you couldn't walk around without someone putting a, a, a clipboard in your face asking you if you registered to vote. Um, so I, I guess I'm wondering, do you think that this was just a, a flash in the pan, given the kind of political climate that we've seen? Or, or do you see this as, you know, when we get to the, the next midterm in 2022, that it, it'll these trends will, will continue? I think the answer to that question is yes. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think in some ways you are going to see um, these, you know, there there is an activism and a engagement with politics that is, um, you know, unique and new. And um, what Donald Trump has done is to energize the electorate, both, you know, either you love, there's nobody who's indifferent to Donald Trump. And I think that has a lot to do with why, I mean, you know, we need to spell this out. This is the largest midterm turnout since 1914. And, And that means that everybody Voting rates for any subset of the populace went up, and that is a dramatic, dramatic um, event. Yeah. So the, I mean, the energy that we saw throughout the past two years, from the women's march on right after the inauguration, through to who knows what, just through the special elections and, and everything else where we were, and the increases in voter registration, they were real. You know, there, there was clearly a higher level of energy. I'm. I'm a little more cautious on saying that this will continue, uh, but it was certainly here right now. But one thing that, that really has struck me, though, is that we're not really prepared to handle all of this increased turnout. Uh, I, I think we did it. I think in some states it was really disturbing how the elections actually went and and a little hard for a lot of Americans to understand why in an advanced democracy we need to be waiting online for hours and hours to vote. Yeah, and, and there's 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 a, a common media narrative, I think, that if you see long lines, that's kind of framed as being a positive thing. It's when not it a positive that, thing. Yes. It just strikes me as inefficiency and, and – uh, you know, but then then in places like California, where they they try to solve this problem in part by uh, by having vote by mail, and that, then then people are like, well, why aren't the results in right away? Well, because if you vote by mail, it's going to take a little while to get the get the results in. So I I don't know. It was uh, I I found it uh, I found it disturbing that there were so many problems in the voting. Uh, I don't think it's good for American politics uh, that people are so concerned about the actual process of voting. Uh, on the other hand, a lot of people voted in the midterm, and I guess we weren't ready for it. Right. And and so some of it is just a, a swamping, right? You know, you, you expect so many people, given what normally happens in a midterm, and this was a lot more. I guess However, so. But, you know, the polls got it right. So somebody right. must have known that all these people were going to turn out and vote. Yeah, I—, I, I I think that's right. And I also think that if uh, and I'm assuming the Democrats are smart enough to recognize this and that this would be part of this H.R. one that you're talking about, that that, you know, you should not have to wait hours in line to vote. And and, you know, if you see any um, any if there's any reason to be suspicious about who is waiting in line and what subset of the American body politic is waiting in line, if they're if they happen to be poorer than the regu- you know than most people or browner or blacker, then that is going to just uh, reinforce this narrative that that voting is just unfair. And so I think it's a um, if you know empiricism aside, I think it's a smart thing for the Democrats to be running on. All right. 
So uh, now as we head into 2019 and the, the new session of Congress, we have Democrats in control of the House and Republicans in control of the Senate. Um, Adam Schiff has been saying that you know the, the, the House Democrats are going to waste no time calling for, for subpoenas into the, the Trump administration and you know Trump family, kind of everything in, in Trump's orbit. I'm kind of curious as to what what this uh, what you guys think this divided Congress means for democracy or what the what the, the political landscape might mean. Well, for one thing, I think it might mean a restoration of oversight and pushback from from the Congress, which is one of its responsibilities that, in my view, has kind of gone unattended over the last couple of years. And uh, it's it's being couched often in terms of, oh, the Democrats are going to subpoena, they're going to investigate. And well, they're going to do what they're supposed to do, I think, which is to oversee what's going on in the executive branch. And that's that's a job of the Congress. So doing what they what they're supposed to do is, you know, it's a Madisonian idea, right? Mm-hmm. That that um, that each branch of of government is supposed to look out for its own power and to and to um, to work hard to make sure that their power is maintained and um, any pushback against their power is um, is contested, and in our you know, in the contemporary climate, uh, that role has been overwhelmed by partisanship. And and so, you know, when it's a Republican House, Republican Senate, Republican uh, presidency, that role of Congress, that self-understanding of Congress has declined. And so now you have a different partisan identity to Congress or, yeah, to the House. And so that is going to, you know, for partisan reasons, is going to lead to uh, a very Madisonian outcome, I think. Do you agree with that? Yes. I mean, I, my reading of, of how they thought <laughs> checks and balances would work is that different sorts of factions would get in control of different branches of government and then counter one another. Uh, what I don't think they anticipated was the way in which political parties would uh, link institutions together right. in such a cooperative as right. opposed to a conflictual relationship. Mm-hmm. I think that's I think that's basically what. Yeah, I'm and 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 we've really seen that. I mean, we've seen it under any unified government, but just in some ways, it just seems like it's on steroids this time around. And I think that's because, uh, quite frankly, there's been an unusual amount of. Suspected corruption mm-hmm. in the executive branch, mm-hmm. and uh, that's gone uninvestigated. Right, and and that's the point. Yeah, um, that that you know, it is it is the House's role to investigate. It's the Congress's role. right. It's the Congress's role, but it, it is it, to investigate um, breaches of public trust by the executive branch. I, I'd go even further. It's their responsibility to look over everything the executive branch does. The executive, these agencies wouldn't exist if it weren't for Congress. The laws that they're carrying out would not exist if it weren't for Congress. Mm-hmm. Congress has a responsibility to oversee what's going on in the executive branch as it carries out its laws. Right. We and we talked all about that with Doug Kreiner way back on episode two yes, of this we show. Did. You guys That's might right. have forgotten about that, but yes. that was very early on. Yeah. So and and speaking of investigations, the you know, something that's kind of been lingering in the background all year has been the the Robert Mueller investigation. Who's that? <laughs> yeah, we we don't talk much about we, him. We we could be about to shoot ourselves in the foot mm-hmm. if we if we talk about this now. Wouldn't and be the first you know, time. his his report comes out in the next two weeks. Well, but... maybe we don't. Oh, right. 
But I think it's 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 been interesting that there's you know in we we've seen a couple of things happen this year. One has been um, attacks uh, on on Mueller himself from from Trump, uh, you know, largely on Twitter. There's also been um, a lot of people within the president's orbit being indicted and and coming out as saying one thing on on one occasion and then maybe changing their mind or you know admitting to lying later on uh, what what do you guys make of, uh, of where things are with with Mueller and some of these these attacks that have been going on where to start with yeah Mueller. big question sorry well let me or let me start because I mean I think you know we can say a lot about this you know I mean, everybody does, right? <laughs> you know, you can't turn on cable TV without hearing something about where things are right now. But, you know, for, from the perspective of democracy, I just want to just um, say one thing, and that is that, that, you know, the indictments that have coming, come down so far, the guilty pleas have as much as often as not been about lying, Right. It's been lying to the FBI, lying to the uh, special prosecutor or lying to Congress. And, you know, I I just want to frame this as something that is bad for democracy. If, If democracy is to operate, there has to be this presumption that while politicians might prevaricate, they might spin, they might. Um, say things in one way to one audience and another way to another audience, they don't lie. They don't say things that are patently untrue. And if that, situ- if that presumption is, um, become, is undermined, then it becomes just simply difficult to sustain a democracy. And if the ideal of truth is gone, then a democracy is impossible to sustain. When I think about the Mueller investigation, and, 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 and it takes me to a place of, of considering how challenging the past year or two have been on in terms of Americans' faith in political institutions more broadly. Uh, and, and the fact – so the fact, for example, that the, the media is constantly attacked to the place – to the point where it's declared the enemy of the people uh, means that for many in the Ameri- – uh, Republican – trust anything that comes out of the media's ears. Or only specific sources. Well, and on our elections, too. I mean, I was really I was really struck after the midterm election that the president was taking taking the position that there was something illegal or nefarious going on in Florida before all the votes had been counted, while people seemed to be following basically the rules of how you conduct a recount. Uh, just the other day, the Speaker of the House questioned why it was taking, you know, questioned whether or not there was something going on in California that it was taking so long to count the ballots. I'm thinking, well, Mr. Speaker, you know that mail-in ballots could be mailed up until the day of the election in California. You know those rules. And so you know that it's going to take a couple of weeks for all the votes to come in. Yet what is accomplished by suggesting that there's something nefarious going on? And I, and I think it's a constant undercutting of Americans' faith in its governing institutions and in how we run elections and who inve- in our uh, Justice Department, in our intelligence agencies, in our media to I, it, it's hard for me to imagine how any of this is good for conducting a democracy. 
In yeah. fact, it seems quite damaging. Right. The the other thing that we've seen, I think, kind of maybe ties into this a little bit is is that not only are people kind of more distrustful in general, there's also seems to be a lack of empathy, and and that ties to to polarization. I know that the the Mood of the Nation poll, which we run here in the Institute, um, just had had findings come out that where they asked. Um, people from both political parties to put themselves in the shoes of people from the other side and, and try to uh, rationalize how how or or why people voted the way that they did. And, and people had a hard time doing that. And I, I think that kind of speaks to something else that, that's concerning about democracy is as we kind of look back and you know, look ahead to, to next year. Yeah, we've been seeing this in the poll for for the full Two years or so that we've been been running it, we've asked questions about it in different ways. But I, I think you've summarized it pretty well. It's just a lack of empathy for the other side. Uh, but we've seen this elsewhere too. You know, years ago, David Brooks was all upset by the fact by poll results that Democrats didn't want their what was it? They didn't want their son or something to marry their child. They didn't want their child to marry somebody from the other party or and. Uh, other sorts of poll findings. Not, which, not just Democrats, people on both sides. Oh, yeah, people yeah. on both sides. I mean, just other sorts of findings suggesting deep levels of uh, hostility, uh, lack of empathy, lack of caring towards people on the other side. Uh, and, yeah. and, and and I suspect this is reinforced by polarization. It's reinforced by uh, social media. And it's reinforced by the sort of media, media silos that uh, people increasingly find themselves in. Yeah, I think it's, it's, you know, to say it's a lack of empathy undersells mm. it. I think we really are in a position of, you know, growing enmity where, you know, you simply cannot conceive of the, uh, of the honesty or the morality of folks on the other side. Or the fact that you just have a difference of opinion, but you're both actually both sides believe they can that what they believe in will make the country a better place. Right. And 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 that is well that's just politics, right? But there has to be some conception that, you know, the the country is not in dire danger if the if your side loses. And I don't think either side um feels that way right now. Which may go back to speak to the exceptionally high turnout in the midterm election. I, I think it does. Yeah. I think precisely right. Mm-hmm. So some of these things are, are double-edged swords. We, we've talked about social media, which I, I think we, we could make the case has contributed to that lack of empathy, you know, media silos. But on the other hand, um, you know, social media has also been used as a force for organizing, for helping to encourage people to vote, other things that we would say are, are pro-democracy. Um, you know, we, we also saw this year the, the March for Our Lives. Um, those those events came together within a matter of weeks and, you know, due in, in large part to social media. So I, I, I don't know. I think it's, it's easy to um, blame social media. We did a whole episode on that with Matt Jordan where we talked about how undemocratic Facebook is. But at the same time, I don't know, guys, it just seems like it's there. There might still be some hope there. Maybe that's just my role as, as the resident optimist of the three of us. Um, you know, what do you think? Well, you know, we really first saw this years ago with Move On, uh, w- which was one of the very earliest social media kind of organizing tools, I think, around the Howard Dean campaign. Well, and then Move On was actually about uh, the response to Clinton's 
you know, uh, impeachment, what ended up being Clinton's impeachment. It was right, the idea but without that, going too much into the right, right, into right. the content of it, the fact that it was really it was uh, it took advantage of new technology, as did the Arab Spring took care of new technologies, as did uh, as we're seeing right now in France, actually, where the uh, Yellow Jacket protests have been uh, largely credited to the fact that. People are organizing extremely quickly and effectively through social media. So, yeah, social media. I, I think also when we saw uh, with the uh, tr- when the uh, travel ban was first instituted by President Trump, right, and the, the people were all of a sudden in the airports, and lawyers were in the airports, and this was all over the country. And I mean, something like that can only happen because of the uh, social media tools that now make instant organizing possible. Uh, none of which is meant to suggest that. You know, we're also watching the Russians take advantage of social media to uh, take to uh, deepen uh, deepen divisions that already exist within American society. They're very effective at it. Uh, yeah, a double-edged sword, I guess, is the way to is the way to put. Mm-hmm. It's more like this is just the reality in which we operate now, and and politics and democracy is going to have to adapt to uh, to this new media. Yeah, I think world. that's I think that's mm-hmm. right, and and so I actually saw uh, Matt Jordan, you know, a friend of the podcast, and reminded him about this and told him that. You know, I think I believe more what he said than he does. But, you know, his argument was that this is just a, a, a yet another event in the history of any democracy where it is constrained to adapt to the new technology. And that was true with Penny Dailies. That was true with television. That was true with cable. And now it's true with social media. The problem is that it's moving so fast that it's just hard to keep up and hard to make those adaptations. But... um you know, that's that's the only alternative, right? Yeah, you know, one thing that I found really interesting is just how how good younger both, I would say, younger Americans, younger politicians have been at using mm-hmm. social media. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking, first of all, of the Parkland kids right. and how effectively they organize through social media. Uh, and some of these, uh, some of the newly elected class in Congress are making, I think, brilliant use right. of social media right now in terms of, keeping in touch with their constituents in a way that we really hadn't seen before uh, in terms of building national reputations extremely quickly. Yeah, and and keeping their own face in front of these people and raising yeah. their profile. I mean, it's 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 rare yeah. for a, a new member of Congress to have the kind of standing and, yeah, but and the, status that these people have. Right, but there's also something wonderfully transparent, I think, about, you know, hearing about, for example, a member of Congress choosing their health care plan. Mm-hmm. And, wow, we have much better choices than my constituents right. had, which right. was a, and a that tweet I, I recently six saw. Six months ago, yeah. So that type of thing, too. I mean, they're talking a lot about what's going on as soon as they get to Congress in a way that I don't think Americans were ever plugged into before. Now, of course, I don't know how many people are paying attention, but but it is it is a it is a striking new use of this. Right. So I, I, th- I think, you know, that's that's some hopefulness there, maybe that, you know, younger generations are going to, to continue to adapt more quickly. Um, we, we spent a lot of time talking about young people on on the show this year, stemming from the March for Our Lives. We did a whole episode about millennials and democracy um, with Stella Rouse from the, the University of Maryland. And I, I think there's an interesting dichotomy here, too. So, you know, on, on the one hand, we, we had all this speculation about our young people going to really drive up the voter turnout this year. But on the other hand, as, as you guys talked about in our episode with Stella, young people might view democratic involvement a little bit 
differently, mm-hmm. um, just in terms of less less emphasis on voting and, and more traditional acts of, of democracy. Wondered if we could just uh, revisit that for a minute now that we're past the midterms. You know, where do you think things have, have come down in terms of, of young people? Well, undoubtedly, they turned out to vote in larger numbers than they had before. There's still a fairly small percentage of the overall voting population, but they did turn out and vote in larger numbers. Uh, They did seem to be mobilized. I mean, what I do wonder about is uh, whether or not they'll find after voting in this midterm election that it didn't make as much difference as maybe they thought that it would. Uh, Politics is still a slow and laborious process. (laughs) Slow, boring of hard boards. Right. So uh, they may well find that... uh, direct tension elsewhere if they're not as mobilized and motivated as they were in this election. But, you know, I don't want to sell them short. Their, the turnout was uh, was really quite interesting. It was uh, it was significant. Uh, I don't know whether or not it was really around the gun issue, the way that it kind of started. Uh, but, you know, certainly on campus here, there a lot more voting in the midterm election than we've seen before. Yeah, I mean, oh, nationwide, it was up 50%, which is, you know, astonishing. That's a huge increase. Yeah. But that's because it was so abysmally low in 2014. It was 19, 20%. And so, yeah, that's a, that's a significant increase. And I would be surprised if that kind of increase does not um, manifest itself in terms of the attention of politicians. Do you think... These two things can coexist where, you know, younger people are are voting in in higher numbers, but yet more of them think it's it's less essential to live in a democracy. Do you know how do those two things square? Uh, So the uh, complacency that we saw in this widely circulated graph that uh, not only Americans, but across the Western world, that uh, younger people are less committed to democratic ideals. Uh, the jury's out. Yeah, we don't know yeah, what's going to happen, right? Yeah, we yeah, we just don't know. I mean, I mean, um, are they going to come to the election in twenty twenty feeling like, yeah, my voice mattered. This is important. Uh, the system works. It works for somebody like me. Or are they going to think, up? Oh, yep, just what I thought. This is just this is. It doesn't work. We need something else. I mean, you know. And, you know, when David Frum was here, too, he was making, uh, I thought, an interesting point about younger voters in particular and a kind of, uh, you know, that they get more attracted to a charismatic figure at the top of the ticket and that that's what pulls them out. So they didn't really come out for Hillary Clinton, but they did come out for Bernie. And uh, same thing with Barack Obama and then years ago with Ronald Reagan. Uh, And who knows who's going to be on the top of the Democratic ticket, if it's going to be somebody that's going to really mobilize them to come out or or not. Mm -hmm. I think that's right. So I want to uh, segue into to looking ahead to to next year. I know um, thinking specifically about our show here, we we spent most of the last season talking about issues related to U.S. politics, and I think we're going to expand our horizons a little bit to look at what's happening in some other countries. Well, I mean, you're right, and and this is something that we have not you know spent a lot of time on, but in in some ways, it is uh, it is everything that we 
fear and and fret about and see looming in American politics is just operative in other places. Um, you know, Hungary, at, you know, just yesterday shut down um, the, uh, the Central Hungarian University and did it solely for, for, for political reasons. Um, and, you know, what has been going on in Hungary and in Turkey and in uh, Poland um, is, is clearly just a kind of um, step away from democracy and a step towards authoritarianism. And we've had numerous guests on, too, who have talked about this idea that, well, we ought to be looking to what's happened in some other countries mm-hmm. to understand where we are, that we're not that exceptional. Uh, yeah, there are features of our political system that are that are importantly unique and, and different, but there are examples of democratic elections leading to, you know, eventually more autocratic solutions and uh, or more autocratic outcomes uh, through democracy. Through right? democracy, that's yeah, the, that's, that's the point. Yeah, well, that's yeah. that was the whole point of Daniel Zibler, right? And, and and we both, you know, we all have come back to that um, analysis again and again, and you know. Honestly, in terms of, you know, what I've seen in the news about these, um, you know, here and elsewhere, it just reinforces just uh, the the salience and, and intelligence of that analysis. Well, just to return to where you started uh, earlier today, Chris, when you were talking about what just happened in Wisconsin, where they're right. sort of changing the rules on right. their way out. We saw this in North Carolina. They're trying to weaken the incoming mm-hmm, governor mm-hmm. because the governor is elected Democrat instead of Republican. And this is being done by people that were duly elected. Right. And I also... And, and what they're doing is changing the rules afterwards. Right. And I also think this speaks to just uh, yet in a different way, speaks to the the degree of enmity that's in society, right? That you... That I don't see these people as honest brokers. I don't see these people as just having a different point of view. I think they must be stopped. And right. I will use every means available to me to do so. And there's also... a there, there's also a cumulative effect here. And once you start going down these roads, it's very hard to turn around. I mean, hard for me to understand why Democrats might not, you know, take control of the government in Wisconsin and then turn around and try to do the same thing to Republicans. Why not? They that, did it well, to them. Well, and that's just human nature, yeah. you know? <laughs> and, and, it's just human nature. Yeah, so it, it's, it takes down a bad road. Mm-hmm. And, and that's why it's considered a violation of norms right. to uh, just, you know, push your power to the every possible extreme, uh, next side's going to do that too. Mm-hmm. So what else should should people be keeping an eye on? What are you guys keeping an eye on as we, we look toward 2019? <laughs> well, I think 2019 in American politics is you know really going to be dominated a lot by what comes out of Mueller. I agree. Whatever form that it comes. But we're going to see a lot of that in the uh, next couple of months, I would think. But, of course, what's going on around the world, as we were saying, is really where so much of the action is going to come from. I mean, we have, you know. We didn't even mention Brazil. Brazil, right? whatever's going on in France right, right. now, uh, which Germany's clearly... going to have some new elections, probably a new chancellor. And you have newly empowered Russia. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, and, you know, real questions about the extent of our commitment to some of the Western democracies. So uh, may no, you live in interesting times. Yeah. I think no shortage of uh, no shortage of, of things to talk about next season. Yeah. Let's not let's not do too much predicting because <laughs> I, haven't been, I haven't been too good at that. In the yeah, last I, and, of and nor years. has anybody else. So. Yeah. 
Yeah, so I, I think this this discussion and, and really all you know everything we've been able to do since we launched the show in March, I think really speaks to how much of an interest there is in in democracy writ large. You know, we can we can talk about what you know the the state of things or how things are are, are declining or eroding, but I think that I'm, I'm reminded of of something David Frum said when he was here, which is just that there is interest like there has not been at least in in recent memory. You know, he talked about people even as as recently as five or six years ago would say, oh, I I read your article. Now they're saying, I read it. I digested it. They have thoughtful comments. We've seen increases in subscriptions to a lot of the major news outlets, um, a cottage industry of of books on democracy that we we did a whole episode about the the success of, of our podcast and others, I think, really speaks to to a hunger for this information. So um, I, I feel, you know, maybe not as good about, about democracy as a whole, but I feel good that there are a lot of people talking about democracy, maybe more so than there were. Isn't there previously. something wonderfully democratic about podcasting? Yes, there is. Sure. Uh, so there are all kinds of voices out there. And, uh, you know, as we found, there is an audience for it. I mean, people are willing to listen to people talk about democracy and what's going on. Yeah, I agree with that. But I also think Jenna is absolutely right that if we had started this five years ago, it would have landed like a Led Zeppelin, right? <laughs> I think there is just a, a – because of the climate, because of the concerns people have with what they see going on here and abroad that makes them more um, concerned about the condition of democracy and more interested in learning more about it. Yes, it's all a good thing. I mean I do – I do. You, we, we should recognize, too, a little bit that people talk – you hear a lot more about people being sort of worried about it, people being anxious about it. Uh, I've read multiple stories along those kind of lines about it. Uh, that's not necessarily a good thing. We should all feel better in the holiday season. <laughs> Well, we should. I, I, the optimist <laughs> rises from the mist. Well, I think we should. I know we're past Thanksgiving. But we should all feel thankful. I think for all the people who've supported our show, who've, who've listened to it, and and to that end, if there are suggestions you have for topics you think we should cover, things you think we should revisit, guests you think we should have on, please. If you think there's too much, touch. too much, Chris, <laughs> not enough. You Michael. should let us know. Michael Berkman Fan Club, Care of Democracy Works. <laughs> And thank you, of course, to the the whole team here at WPSU, uh, Andy Grant, our engineer, uh, Mark Stitzer, our editor, Emily Reddy and Shireen Stanford for their editorial support. The whole team here, top to bottom, has really helped turn this show from something that we we talked about in Chris's office to something that's actually out in the world. So I think that is as good a place as any to leave it and close out 2018. There are plenty of episodes in our back catalog if you um, are... You know, wanting wanting to, to go back and revisit some of the things that, that we've talked about on this show or kind of throughout the year. And new episodes will start in mid-January. So, again, uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. From the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State, I'm Jenna Spinelli. And I'm Chris Beam. And I'm Michael Berkman. Thank you. Happy holidays. Democracy Works is produced by the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU Penn State. Our hosts are Michael Berkman, Chris Beam, and me, Jenna Spinelli. Andy Grant is our engineer, and Mark Stitzer is our editor. Additional support comes from Emily Reddy, Shireen Stanford, Craig Johnson, and the rest of the team at WPSU. 
For detailed show notes and discussion questions for each episode, visit our website at democracyworkspodcast.com. And if you like what you heard today, please consider rating or reviewing us wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.